this it? Mayday. Is it? Everyone, welcome to the Mayday Podcast. This is Justin, and joining me today is Adam Taylor, Emmy-nominated in 2019 for The Handmaid's Tale. He's the composer on the show, does all that uh, uh, some mostly creepy music that we hear in the background, because, uh, <laughs> you know, mostly creepy things are happening in The Handmaid's Tale. So, Adam, uh, welcome to the show. It's our first time talking to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. you got the Emmys coming up. How are you feeling? Um, it's surreal. I have maybe had a few times where I got really insane butterflies in my stomach. The morning uh, it was announced, my agent called me and I freaked out then. And then a couple of days later, I called my mom and dad and told them and it hit me again. It's like very real. And then with just work, you know, you kind of learn to put things in the back of your head in order to hit deadlines and goals and everything. So every once in a while, something will come up and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's that's happening. <laughs> I went to uh, you know get a proper suit for the the night, and uh, the whole time I was nervous there, as if uh, something was happening. It was just in a mall, but it was funny. That's that's nice. So let's let's go back a little bit, and uh, it's our first time talking to you. So I want to get some background to let people know who Adam Taylor is and where he's come from to get to this point in his career. From my research, correct me if I am wrong. I've read you started basically you were self taught. Started at 15 years old. Picked up playing guitar played in some bands and we're doing some things for church. So tell me what possesses uh, Adam Taylor at 15 to decide, hey, music is a thing I want to check out. I was a big fan of Nirvana and a friend up the street, his dad was a painter and he would upend a bunch of the buckets and play those as drums and asked for uh, a really crummy guitar for like, I think maybe my birthday or Christmas or something. And we just wanted to do it because we thought it was cool, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and at the time I lived inland and there was not much else to do. So we'd just go and take turns in each other's garages and just make little demos and, you know, hang around. Very cool. So obviously Nirvana yeah. is an influence. You were making things at church. So when you're composing your music, where how are those influences from back when you first started making music? Do they still creep into the things you're making now? How has all that kind of formed what you're making at this stage in your career? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was uh, I just went on a trip to visit an old friend. We used to write um, songs for, like, placements. And I was realizing how long it's been since I've been in that um, format and how rusty I am. So I feel like I kind of had to relearn how to approach music when it has to apply to visual, you know, to a cut sure. of a TV show or film or something. Because um, it takes a lot less to get the job done but uh, each note counts more because you have less to work with. So it was a very uh, long path to learn it when I, I was basically walked away from music. I was waiting tables and looking to maybe get into restaurant management. And a friend of a friend reached out through me because he had, I was providing some instrumental music at this uh, kind of like hipster church in Long Beach here. And um, he started feeding me a lot of ad jobs and he really helped me understand like the sensibility it takes to stay out of the way and and also still contribute 
Yeah, that was an interesting thing that I was thinking about was how do you toe that line when you're a composer for a television show or in a movie or even ads where you want the music to be good and influential and part of the process, but you don't want it to be that thing that people go, oh, that's not good. Because that's usually when people notice the thing is when it stands out for a not good reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I did these little web videos on Vimeo, and then this director reached out to me um, fairly quickly. It was maybe three or four months after I started doing instrumentals for various things. And I went up to his house, and I sh- he showed me his like, indie movie, and I was like, oh, this is it. I'm going to make it. <laughs> I had never done anything like that. I was usually just working on, you know, 30 or one minute or two minute things. So he delivered me these reels. I had no idea what I was doing. I had the wrong frame rate. So every time I would send him things, they would just not line up and they would be way too long or weird. So I ended up getting fired from it. No. Uh, and he ended up having to like find a friend to score his film in like a matter of a week or two, which I felt bad, but also it was a crush, you know, it was a crushing blow to sure. my, my self-esteem. And so it was very nervous. And every job after that for the next year, I just would always be super anxious that I would get fired, including up to The Handmaid's Tale. Because wow. it was it was absolutely out of my um, element. It was the first TV show I'd ever done. And read the director, I had scored her first feature, Meadowland, and we worked really well together. So she was pitching really hard. And I know Lizzie was in that boat as well to Bruce and the showrunners because they were, I think they were hesitant because I didn't have any credit. Sure. So what was it about the music that you had done for Meadowlands for Reed Morano before that she thought would translate well into what she was looking to do with The Handmaid's Tale? Because I know she kind of came in with the show Bible and said, this is what we're doing. This is what the show looks like. This is what the show sounds like. Here we go. So I'm sure her, her you know, relationship with you kind of led to a comfort level where she was like, let's get this guy. I know he does great work. But what, what was it about your style and your uh, compositions that she thought would translate well for the show? Yeah, I, I think how well we worked together was probably a selling point for her. It was very collaborative from the very beginning. I was, I was sending her sketches when they were still filming Meadowland. And I, I know she enjoys having music as she's going. And I think knowing she knew how to talk music with me, specifically, we had a basis already of how to work with each other. I think that meant it would be easier for her to, to get the sound that she was hearing in her head. So, you know, leading up when they were shooting the pilot and um, before I really even signed <laughs> paper, I was working on sketches and sending her stuff so that by the time they started assembling the pilot, there was already places that we could go with music that we had already developed together. I think she kind of, maybe she has a kind of a deeper sadness and she saw that in me as well and knew that would work well for the show and that it would, it would, it would be kind of an easy thing to shoot from the hip for me to, to score Pammy's tale based on, I imagine what she could see in me and, knows about me and stuff. Interesting. In your music, when I was listening to it, there is this really nice balance between what I'm referring to as organic and electronic sounds. Some orchestration, but also these kind of electronic sounds that couldn't come from anything natural that creep into these. And you balance it really well. Talk about your process and kind of what the influences are into the music and how you try and generally kind of mend those things together. Yeah, so the uh, first season... The thing, the theme that we were going for with Score was that, you know, life in Gilead is kind of this like low res Xerox copy of what life used to be. So, um, and approaching the score that way, uh, muting the piano 
was felt when we play it, um, muting the strings when we recorded them, and then going very raw and analog with the synths, uh, even to where one of the more kind of ominous, dreadful sounding cues in the show is um, a synth going through an old tape echo with purposefully damaged tape in the machine nice. to mimic the you know the loss of fidelity, the loss of life, of joy, this um, odd life that Americans are now living in the show. And then uh, on paper, I think I wanted to use a lot of glissando with the orchestra and the synths because having definite stop-starts of notes felt too comforting. So I, I, I felt it was a little more um, kind of made your skin crawl more when mm. the notes kind of were blurred into one another as well. Yeah, it definitely does a lot of uh, making your skin crawl. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> and now that you're into the third season, you do notice some of these things as a viewer of kind of these signature sounds that come at certain moments. I know for a composer, sometimes you like to, you got to change things up. And if you get repetitive, any artist is going to be like, okay, I've done this a million times. But right. talk about having the balance between maintaining some of those signature sounds that you have that you've created for these moments in the show and also being able to kind of flex your muscle and say, hey, this is something different that I've come up with. So the great thing about the series is that there has been a slow and steady, you know, build crescendo, so to speak, of the grip of Gilead and the power it has over June. It's deteriorating. And as that progresses, the music can reflect that as well. So in third season, there were um, a lot more colors uh, available for us to use, uh, woodwinds, brighter sounding orchestration. And we were, I went more melodic to kind of um, harmonize with that. Um, but then there were times there's a uh, episode based in Washington, D.C. And, you know, Lizzie or June looks out and sees the Washington Monument's been desecrated more or less into right. a, uh, a cross. You know, we have that old season one sound. And I, um, it, it felt appropriate. And also the DP, a call-in from seasons one, two, and he directed an episode in season three. And he came visit me here in Long Beach at the studio. And we were talking about wanting to expand, but also you got to play the hits is what he said. <laughs> true. Using those sounds when we can, but also wanting to step away from it because the rebellion is coming, May Day is happening and all these exciting things. And for the first time, there's a really big win and there's more hope and joy, albeit muted. There is some joy to be had in season three. Tell me a little bit about the logistical process of you creating music for the show. So how does that process for you creating actual music for the show for each episode work? Yeah, so I don't know if it's unusual because I've never really done anything before this. But it started off in season one where I didn't really get any scripts or anything. I would just get delivered the episode. The first thing, it's usually a pretty early morning. I get on a conference call with all the lovely people in Canada. <laughs> and I'll watch the episode in, in real time and be reacting to it on a conference call with them. And then we'll stop it where we, when we need to discuss what music is or could be doing. Sheila, one of the exec producers, is on almost every call, if not all of them. But she puts it in her calendar. She calls it watching television with Adam. Because <laughs> they really, they really get a kick out of hearing me gasp and even whimper and cry a little when uh, when things are going well or not well at all. And oftentimes now with season three, they're able to pull from last two seasons just to help with the music 
dialogue because, you know, it's a very subjective thing. But if you just show somebody, okay, we like this, you know, piece of music from season two, but it's to this and to that. And obviously the end and the beginning needs to be clean. Um, so oftentimes I'll just use that as a starting off point and see the structure and the shaping that they want and then just start fresh and write a new new piece. Unless there's a specific request by somebody that they love it and it makes cosmetic or thematic sense to have that same theme occur there, then we'll just you know map it and re-record it for that episode. Oh, very nice. So what's your what's your turnaround time generally? Yeah, so I had a lot of little mini panic attacks in season one because I wouldn't even have these episodes yet, and there was already sessions and musicians booked and seats filled oh, in the future of things I had even written. So I, it was very, very difficult, uh, those first three or four episodes, to ignore that there's all this money and people waiting at the finish line, hoping you make it there, you know, without dying or something. They gave me a lot more time with the first season. They knew I would definitely need to learn the ropes because right. it was my first show. And now this uh, season three, I'm trying to remember, I would get usually, I don't know, maybe anywhere from seven to nine days to oh, score wow. an episode. Wow. So in my studio, I have all my synth lined up and my piano. I would give them demos against picture with everything except, you know, orchestra, maybe fake sample stuff. They usually have a two or three day turnaround for notes. And then there's usually one day to revise. And then um, every two episodes, we would book a session and record all the orchestra and any other overdub stuff that needed that I couldn't do here. It's a pretty tight... Um, machine that is running and you you really got to like get in get in line and march to the drum you know absolutely i know the scheduling for tv versus being on a film is just completely different uh so talk a little oh, about yeah. making that transition from you know even even with your film work you haven't you hadn't even done that many so i imagine you just kind of gotten oh. that system under your <laughs> under your belt and then bam this tv project comes along uh so what was that like trying to you know make that transition it was it was um, seven days a week, 15, 16 hours a day, no social life, a lot of horrible fast food because that's when they open when I'm driving home at 1 a.m. <laughs> so I gained like 20 pounds <laughs> the first season um, and just didn't really do anything else. And, uh, you know, it's like anything else. You know, it's a new skill, new exercise, a new muscle group. You just have to boot camp it and get through and, you know, you know, just get better and find help and learn how to ask for help Yeah. and uh, be okay feeling, you know, needing help. That was a big thing. Like now I have a assistant that's almost full time now helping me so that I can have dinner around eight instead of, you know, midnight for season. I would probably write maybe one or two cues a day, equaling maybe like a minute or two minutes at most. And now I'm doing like two or three times that. And I think the writing is much cleaner and more to the point. And uh, it's like learning a, yeah, learning a new language in a way. Sure. Uh, talk to me about, yeah. you know, being a self-taught musician versus having gone through, you know, your normal channels of getting to this point. 
Uh, talk to me about the kind of benefits and the detriments of that. And do you feel that's been more beneficial than not? Or do you wish you would have kind of gone through your normal classical training? Yeah, I don't know, to be honest. I feel like being um, a musician and gigging around and making a lot of contacts was helpful because when I was doing like more cinematic ads, I had a, a group of friends that I could hit up to help with studio time to record, you know, a, a 10 piece for like a Mercedes commercial or a mix, you know, a sound engineer to mix like my stems for like an indie film. So that was helpful. And I, I'm, I imagine you could probably get those contacts going to school because I imagine you'd meet people there. But it really came down to um, doing a lot of hard work and writing. Like I would uh, I'd wait tables at night and then come home and either, you know, grab a quick shower and go into this little walk-in closet and just write and produce instrumental tracks so that I would have this big library because I knew it would be advantageous to write while it seemed like the creativity was really flowing and mm -hmm. the faucet was on and just keep filling up those jars, so to speak. A big help was just having a backlog of a lot of pieces of music that I was proud of that I thought would work well against a picture and that hard work kind of meeting an opportunity of when I was working in ads and the first director that really brought me into the world, I landed a campaign, a campaign that he was doing that had this, uh, you know, Oscar winning editor, Stephen Mirioni. And he asked me for the, my reel cause he really liked my stuff, which was, it blew my, blew my mind. I was like, <laughs> Oh my goodness, this guy looks my stuff. And he used it to cut August Osage County which led to a phone call with John Wells' assistant and then a meeting with John Wells to discuss possibly scoring. And I ended up getting to, you know, go to Abbey Road in London. <laughs> and hear the, Yeah, it was the craziest. I think it was maybe six months' time of me quitting, serving, landing that campaign, Stephen Marioni contacting me, going to John Wells, and then going to Abbey Road to hear the London Metro Phil record all these themes. And on screen is like Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts, right. you know, like Julia Roberts chasing Meryl Streep through a, a field. Uh -huh. And I, I was, it was, I ended up letting it out twice where I, I just started crying. I couldn't help it. And oh. um, I was just uh, full of joy that night. It was just this amazing time. And I remember telling myself there, I was like, wow. I felt like a bit of a fraud that I just kind of got let in the back door and crashed this really great party. But I knew I wanted to work really hard and get back to a place on my own merit and my own strength and my own writing and, and uh, arrive there again. You know, it was amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. And it was, it was interesting for me to look um, at your background and see how many of the things that you've done that I've actually watched. So I have seen Handmaid's Tale, obviously. Uh, I think we're alone now. Sabrina. And I've also seen August Osage County, which is a fantastic film with a fantastic cast. Yeah. So, yeah, I've seen so much of you and heard most of your stuff, and I didn't even realize it. So that was kind of incredible. When it all comes down to it, I want to know, this is kind of the nerd thing in me, I want to know what influenced Adam Taylor and what influences you now. I mean, I grew up loving Nirvana at first and then Radiohead and the whole shoegazer phase. And I always just enjoyed bands that wouldn't do super obvious pop format sure. songs and Something that I think people tend to kind of associate with me is I'll I'll sing often as a layer on on tracks. Love that. And that's just more by request. Read uh, at the very beginning with Metal and responded really well to the tracks I gave her, where I was kind of just doing these oohs and ahs in the background, and 
And as far as kind of the synth approach, I, I just have always been a fan, and I think I have some pretty close friends that would make fun of me and call me out if I ever used, you know, just a computer and I wasn't patching things and <laughs> chasing, chasing the sound in my head with outboard stuff. You know, it's kind yeah. of cheating if you're just recalling, you know, presets on a, you know, a MacBook or something. As far as orchestra and even piano, I kind of had to learn piano for season one of Handmaid's Tale. Um, you just made and, a whole and, lot of people very angry right now. Tell you that. I love it. I'm this sorry. guy just had to like learn. Uh, you know, I just learned it. It's cool. <laughs> so there's people well, out there going, "Oh my god, come on!" <laughs> no, no. I mean, you could, you could, you could hear. You could tell. I've got maybe six or eight months of practicing <laughs> piano on my belt. And uh, I, I go back and listen to season. One, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just, uh, it's very mechanical sounding. It's like um, a robot playing a piano, but it kind of worked because I was muting it anyway, so I didn't need a really great touch sure. necessarily. And same thing for orchestration. Um, I had maybe been a year into starting to write more for orchestration uh, strings, mostly just for ads. When Hammys came along, the love the team uh, with uh, Hammys Tail Hulu, everybody in Canada. They set me up with orchestrators, copyists, a contractor, and they're all dear friends now. Actually, had dinner last night with uh, Peter Rotter, who owns the company that fills seats and does all the behind the scenes stuff and Scott Smith, who's the, uh, been sound engineer since day one, just really lovely people. As far as how I approach orchestration, it was just, you know, going more long notes, you know, not trying to reinvent the, the, the wheel necessarily just, uh, writing what fits and sure. not uh, necessarily trying to be too flashy or, or, uh, too, uh, cerebral with uh, the chord structures and just learning the ropes and being able to bounce ideas back and forth with the orchestrators and just kind of learning as I go. It's been nice to have such gracious people helping me. Sure. And I, I really think it can be, you know, I, I think it can be a benefit in the creative side of things when you don't know what you don't know. And so you're just trying right. things that you think might work and things that you would want to hear. And so I think sometimes you get into yeah. a situation where, People in the industry like television and movies have heard the same kind of approach a number of times, and here comes this kind of fresh take from a guy who doesn't necessarily know any better, uh, for lack of a better way of putting yeah, it. I, exactly. I mean, I, I've, I've been in the sound booth, and we're recording, and I've had the orchestra explain to me why something I wrote was so appropriate for this particular scene um, just on a music side. I'm like, oh, is that what that's called? <laughs> I just... It's just how I felt when I was watching the scene, and uh, okay, cool. So that's so that's augmented, that's diminished. Oh, okay, cool. You know, <laughs> taking notes, there, there, writing that down. Okay, that's what I yeah. gotta say next time when I do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I had to I had to go online and get flashcards to because I I, I I did music theory in college back in like 1999 or 2000. So I'm, I'm I was you know at the time I was like illiterate. I couldn't read notes on a page. It was just me performing pieces and then transforming it that's crazy it's just crazy but uh, yeah. it's obviously worked for you and it's you know and you're not the only one who's taken that approach um but let's talk about so there's my other thing i always like to dig into uh with the creative side of things what are the non-musical kind of inspiration things for you um where you're you know maybe not a band or anything like that but just things in your life or things that you feel um i have this story that i that you may have heard being a music person but 
this was like a number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, Bob Dylan was kind of in this inspirational rut. So he was out searching out all these venues and recording locations for all these famous uh, albums like Springsteen's uh, uh, Born to Run and a Neil Young record. I don't remember which one it was, but he was out somewhere and actually got arrested because he was just dressed in normal clothes and it was raining and it was creeping around this house that somebody used to record <laughs> at some point. And he was just really out there searching for like, you know, locations and what really made these things inspirational to people. So outside of the obvious, you know, the musical influence that you talked about, what in your, you know, in your head and your life outside of music really inspires you and helps with your creative drive? Lizzie is a fantastic muse. Um, getting to score her performances, that's huge, you know, I know, um, opposite, like when I'll get a little writer's block going, I, there's this, uh, pretty large warehouse where, you know, you can go buy old furniture and there's records and a lot of antiques and, and I, I kind of like to, you know, drive over there and just kind of wander and look at all these artifacts of people that have, you know, died many years ago and these, you know, little tangible things that are just being passed from person to person just kind of thinking about um the the continuum of humans that definitely helps a lot with just kind of um pulling back and getting out of my own head and getting out of the writer's block or whatever and then you know just i think uh, um it's probably obvious enough but you know trauma past trauma dealing with it not dealing with it um i think it's really helpful to have difficult times in your past to remember to access, you know, certain emotions that are needed. I, you know, you don't always have to be depressed to write a sad piece of music or right. happy to, you know, you can just get a piece of paper and follow the, you know, color by number sort of thing. Sure. But I think, um, I think there is something to it on some other level where the person's headspace was authentically in that space when they were writing. It translates, I think, and maybe is able to speak that language a little more clearly to be Comes more universal. a little more authentic. Yeah. Um, now, I know in listening, because I'm a huge music nerd, and listening to interviews with musicians um, and talking about the writing process, there's some different schools of thought where uh, a lot of the ones that I get into are, it's more emotionally based. So if you listen to Tori Amos, for example, talk about writing a song, it's one of the more amusing things that I've ever listened to because she talks about them <laughs> and gives them like their actual person that has just kind of crept oh. into her life. Or like Neil Young will talk about how you're just kind of this vessel that whenever the music decides it's time for you to write it, it will just come to you. And you hear other people talk about, no, like, you know, you sit down, you write a song, you work at it, you work it to death. What kind of school of thought are you in as far as that kind of creativity goes? Yeah, so it that's interesting. It's a little bit of two of those. I'll be sitting here and I've got a scene and I'll watch it a few times and I'll just kind of start to hear something in my head. And then I'll get, sit down with, I got a metronome and I'll find the tempo and then I'll just kind of be hearing it in my head and I'll figure out the time signature and, and then I'll just perform it right there against the picture. And then that's kind of a skeleton and then you start to add all the pieces as it goes and it just kind of comes out of nowhere <laughs> and uh, it works really well. And those ones I've never gotten revision notes. Those are the ones that go all the way to the mix stage unadulterated. Wow. And there's other, there's other times where I'll watch a scene and I need to do something kind of left field at that point. Um, it does come down to, okay, here's the scene and I'll pick a tempo and make markers 
and very all the changes that needed and kind of treat it like you're assembling a big uh, Lego thing or, sure. you know. More of a assembly line approach. Yeah, you just, you just do the work and you get through it. And at the end, you're like, yeah, that, that does the job. Right. You know? Doesn't necessarily inspire you, but it gets it gets through the thing that it needed to get through and you can move on. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, before we go, I always have to ask this since we're two music nerds talking to each other. Sure. What, what are you listening to right now? that we should be listening to and what are some of your your favorite records that you can uh and now i your favorite records is very subjective and i hate when people do this i hate when they say i'm not talking all time it doesn't have to be a top five you're not picking between your children here i know that's kind of how it feels for music people but uh just some things that you think people should be interested in that you're that adam taylor is influenced by and that you're listening to right now or in the past that you might think people would dig so this might sound crazy but when I'm working a lot, I try very hard not to really listen to any music. Mm. I'm too worried to accidentally get influenced by anybody in particular. I'll listen to, you know, news radio in the morning and come to work, listen to myself a whole lot. And then I'm kind of <laughs> sick of it at that point. But uh, I had a few weeks off trying to remember what I was listening to. It was a uh, Tchaikovsky. Yeah, Tchaikovsky, Eugene. But um I heard it on my local classical station, and it was beautiful. Uh, and then I got into um, Stravinsky Spring. I went back at some oldies, golden oldies. I was listening to Midlake, The Trials of Man Panther. That's a love that record, and it's very nostalgic. Sweeps in the, uh, the memories there. Well, so you said you were a fan of Nirvana growing up. What were some other records back in the day that you were that were really uh, influenced? What are those kind of background influences? Sure. Um, yeah, definitely Nirvana at first, and then like the whole grunge thing, you know, '90s style Bush. Then I got more into the alt rock. I used to really be into Toad the Wet Sprocket. Oh yeah. Um, later on, you're speaking That's my language. And then I kind of got into like a weird surfer punk thing for a bit. So. I, I surfed from age 15 to maybe 22, 23, and I liked uh, Unwritten Law. Oh, there you go. Out, get, get Up Kids. Oh, there you people. go. I could, we could yeah, have an, a very long conversation oh, yeah. about the Get Up Kids. Love them. Uh, they had that uh, Reggie and the Full Effect. Oh, man. That is a great promotional copy by Reggie and the Full Effect. For yeah. those of you keeping score at home, if you want a record that was like one of those things where it's like a side project, but it's better than like almost all most of the stuff that they've done. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Absolutely. it's it's hilarious to listen to that record and go god these guys were just like totally dicking around and made this thing yeah. that is like ridiculous but the songs are awesome anyway it was it was yeah it was it was upsetting at the time <laughs> being whatever 19 right and trying to record and they're just dicking around as you say <laughs> And it's like better than anything I'll ever do. I'm like, I hate these guys. It's like, it's like when I listen to, I always tell this about people who haven't, because he had such a short career, people that haven't listened to Jeff Buckley. Um, oh. When oh. I, I was like, okay, this is, he's a guy that, because I sing. Um, and so I'm like, when you listen to people like him do anything, it's like you yeah. just want to put down your instrument and walk away. Yep. And you're like, okay, yep. that's it. I'm done. I can't do that because it's ridiculous. Quit. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's jealousy is very horrible. It is especially in music for music. I mean, all artists for sure, but musicians, it's like you just you you'll be doing something that you think is brilliant, and then here comes this guy, and he's like, "Oh, yeah. here's here's this thing," and you're like, "Oh, that sucks." Here's my effortless thing, <laughs> and uh, sorry you had to work all night. Right. But, uh, I just woke up like this. Yeah, and you know that's one of those things. Especially you hear about that in like athletes too a lot, where it's any form of yeah. like t- talent where you get this guy who falls out of bed. And is 
10 times better than anything you're going to do. And you've been working your ass off practicing every day, you know, trying to come up with all these brilliant things. And you get these people that are just, you know, tapped on the head by whatever deity you want to insert here. And they're just sure. gifted as hell. And it's just, it can be super yeah. frustrating, but you and I seem to come from the same era. And so that's, we could have some yeah. great conversations, man. Cause I was hoping you were going to go face to face. I like face to face too. That's a great band. Oh, I, I yeah. Face, ignorance is bliss. I love the whole, that uh, the whole early 2000s vagrant catalog is pretty great. Um, yeah, vagrant records. I guess my alkaline trio in there. They, oh, yeah, they would fit exactly. very well in uh, Gilead. That's what the kids in Gilead should be listening to is alkaline trio. <laughs> like all the 15 year olds in Gilead should be listening to nothing but alkaline trio because all the lyrics are like horribly macabre, but the music is like, hey, everything's gonna be okay. Um, so yeah well i could talk music nerd stuff with you all day i appreciate you coming on to the podcast uh give me give us a little rundown on some non-handmade stale things that you might be working on uh if you are working on any let's let's uh pump up some projects that you got coming sure yeah um i'm also composing um, on season two technically it's part three because they did two parts for netflix's the chilling adventures of sabrina Fantastic show. So I'm full horror composer for them there. Lots of non-musical crazy sounds I get to make. And uh, um, I mean, that's pretty much it. I do little like indie things in between here and there for like festivals for, but no, like I did a a movie with Reed uh, that went to Sundance and uh, was released like in like on the coast. Um, yeah, it's, just, it's basically just been Handmaids and Sabrina. They overlap a little on their beginnings and ends, so it's not not much else. There's uh, something really exciting on the horizon, but I'm legally not allowed uh, to talk about it yet, but it will be um, neither TV nor film. It'll be a more uh, live, interactive kind of thing. Oh, well, I definitely want to hear more about yeah. that. That's intriguing. Yeah, as soon as it gets ironed out, I'm going to be really excited to talk okay. about it. Well, listen, thank you for coming on the show. You're doing great work. Uh, best of luck with the Emmys that are happening, uh, coming up in this, this month here. And uh, congratulations yeah. on all the success of the show. And keep doing what you're doing because it's obviously working for you, man. Thank you so much. It was, it was so fun. Yeah, absolutely. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. You too. See you, man. Bye.